G'day, I'm Rowan Mackey, and I'm joined by my dad, clinical psychologist Chris Mackey, and this is Psych Spiels and Silver Linings. G'day, Dad. How are you going today? Good, thanks, Rowan, and good to be with you for the start of another year. Absolutely. Happy New Year. Of course, I have seen you off the podcast, but uh, just while we're on the podcast, Happy New Year and Happy New Year to everyone out there as well. And oh, I've got a, a good little topic to start off the new year. I know it's one that both you and I are interested in and we'll probably have a, a couple of episodes over the next little while uh, related to this topic, maybe not directly, but we'll certainly be drawing on it for the next little while. And we've called today's episode Stoicism, the Seeds of Psychological Therapy. So what are we going to be talking about today, Dad? Okay, well, I thought that there are a couple of reasons why it's worthwhile having a, a theme of Stoicism, and it's partly that it's the basis of modern psychology, certainly psychological therapy like cognitive behavioural therapy, rational emotive therapy, and it partly comes from a principle that was outlined by a Stoic called Epictetus, who emphasised man is not disturbed by things but by his view of them. In other words, it's not situations, it's not bad things happening that lead us to feel a certain way, depressed or anxious. It comes down to our perspective, our view of them. And so the Stoics were very much on about principles of how to live a good life, and part of that was about how to manage distress, but also Stoics looked at how to experience some of the positive pole of well-being, as positive psychology might describe it. And so I think it's often under-recognised how this philosophy from thousands of years ago has had such a fundamental influence on psychotherapy, and sometimes it's maybe underemphasized these days. It's probably also under-recognised how Stoicism also informs other more recent forms of therapy like positive psychology. And it's interesting as well because, like, as you say, I think Stoicism is well, in some ways inherently linked to psychology through some of the early psychologists and, and the work that they developed. But it's interesting, it's, it's made a little bit of a comeback in some ways in terms of you see uh, even just like a lot more podcasts about it, a lot more of those kind of accounts on Twitter that you see, whether it be like the Daily Stoic or, or things like this. Like it has almost made a little bit of a, a re-emergence in some ways which when you think about it is, you know, ideas from over 2,000 years ago. In some ways, someone's like, well, why those ideas and why would they come up again? But I think when you look into what Stoicism is, well, some of the relevance sort of appears before your eyes in some ways. Yes, and look, I'll mention one of the things that led me to be interested in this topic too was getting a book just over a year ago called The Lives of the Stoics by Ryan Holiday and Stephen Hanselman. And I found that very interesting. It's got a chapter by chapter on different Stoics, starting off with Zeno, who we'll talk about shortly, but also mentioning people like Epictetus that I just mentioned before. But all of these different people who added a different understanding to what Stoic philosophy was. And I was enjoying reading that and thought at some stage it would be worthwhile us doing a podcast on it, especially because these principles run through a whole lot of therapy without always being so emphasised. Well, I think that's very true and oh, look, I'm, I must admit, Dad, I'll be relying on you a little bit for this one today because some of the main, I suppose, times that I've come across Stoicism is in, say, like a, a history of Western philosophy and things like that. Like I'm reading one at the moment from Bertrand Russell and Stoicism's got a chapter in there, but I find it very fascinating in terms of how it maybe sits in the, well, the, the broader scheme of things in some ways and obviously it was a very foundational 
part of, of our philosophy. But I must admit, there's, there's elements to which I wonder, you know, even within myself, oh, is that stoicism? Is that maybe something that came slightly before it or just after it? So I think maybe uh, if we focus on the psychological aspect of things today, because oh, what was it, say a 300-year-long philosophy? And obviously there was a lot of innovation in that time. So we'll, we'll try and take it pretty simply uh, for today. And then maybe in the, the next episode, you might indulge me with a little bit more of the history side of things too. Yes, I know that in preparing this podcast that I might have had a bit of a different emphasis to you as well, because I know that you read up a lot and follow other podcasts and videos on this topic. Raz, a lot of what I will be emphasising is the themes that I think are especially relevant to everyday therapy. These are the kind of things that I find come to mind or add to an understanding of principles that to do with looking to help people deal with challenges in their lives. Let's start to look at maybe how Stoicism does some of that. And maybe if we go back to the start of Stoicism, because I know the, uh, the founder of Stoicism, Zeno, there's a bit of a story which in some ways encapsulates a fair bit of his philosophy and suggests how maybe it helped him to get over something that, that was quite catastrophic. So do you want to give us a bit of a sense of that? Yes, I suppose in the true spirit of Stoic philosophy, Zeno experienced this event which could have been seen as a tragedy or some real crisis or trauma, but he actually saw it as involving good fortune in the long run. And it involved a boat sinking where he'd been a wealthy trader and he had all this cargo in a boat headed for Athens with all this very expensive purple dye. Now the boat sank He lost his fortune, in a sense, this irreplaceable cargo, and you'd think with any interpretation that would be a dreadful event. But ultimately he said, I made a prosperous voyage when I suffered shipwreck. So how did this turn out? Well, he was wandering around Athens, he's got no boat, he's lost his cargo, and he went to a bookshop. And the bookshop had some philosophy books in it. And he had some original interest in philosophy because apparently his father brought him back books from Athens on these trading trips. But he saw that there was a talk at this bookshop and it was based on teachings from Socrates and it really struck Zeno as meaningful. And he thought, look, I need to have some kind of teacher or mentor just like this person who wrote these things that I've been really moved by, I've heard these ideas spoken that I'd like to learn more about, I need my own philosophy teacher. So he asks the bookseller, look, do you know where I could find a philosophy teacher, a mentor? And just at that moment, the bookseller didn't even have to say anything, he just pointed to this person who just happened to be walking past the door of the bookshop at that stage. He basically is saying, there's your mentor, and it turned out that the person walking past was Crates, a well-known philosopher in Athens at the time. So I would actually call that an example of synchronicity. Just at the moment when he had that need and interest to find someone, there was this person who turned up, whether you call it fate or whatever, and so he found his philosophy teacher, who he learnt from for many years, and following on from that, from around 300 BC, Zeno was developing some of the original principles of Stoic philosophy. And it's interesting that you mentioned synchronicity there because I know that that was a, a obviously a formative part of Zeno's experience and a, a big part of, in some ways, where Stoicism came from. And I suppose it, it highlights the idea that 
like in modern times, we've almost got this idea of, say, being stoic, which is almost like a, you know, a, dare I say, a, a British stiff upper lip kind of philosophy of, you know, just don't sweat the small stuff and basically, you know, let everything kind of bounce off you and sort of don't be emotional in some ways. But I think when you look into actually what philosophy is in terms of what it was all those years ago, well, it's not just about this kind of sense of, or you know, in some ways ignoring the way that you feel in particular situations and just trying to, you know, dampen your emotions. It's more about, say, prioritising emotions to further cultivate than it is to just, you know, ignore a, a particular feeling in a particular situation. I suppose that in some ways highlights or the the maybe part that, say, fate and things like this played in Stoicism. Yes, I think that's a good point. It's not just about having a stiff upper lip or denying feelings. I think it's more that the Stoics were focused on other things like, say, a sense of purpose that was important to them. And so sometimes in pursuing a purpose, that might involve some challenge or hardship or require some temperance or self-control. For example, they'd emphasise the notion of what you might say yes to or what you might say no to. That was a Stoic principle and that helps you in following through with your purpose or values in life. So it does mean being able to tolerate discomfort in some ways, but it's not about denying emotions. It's more about those positive aspects of what does help you experience happiness in life, what helps you experience peace. But part of that is acknowledging your purpose and at times showing self-control in how you pursue that. Not being strict on yourself for the sake of it, but if people want to achieve something worthwhile in life or deal with challenging situations well, often it's a necessity to find ways of bearing with that discomfort to be able to get through those difficult situations. And it's one of the things I find so interesting about, say, this period in history is that, well, I suppose in terms of maybe the material that still exists and the the even historical artefacts that we can still look up from that time, like they were really, I suppose, focused in some ways on the right way to live. And even, say, you know, people like Socrates, Aristotle, Plato, this sort of thing, like part of what they were doing was looking at, say, life in a way that was going to, in some ways, predict some of the obstacles that could come up or the ways that you could almost go awry. And it's almost like, even though you can, you know, go down this path or that path, let's look at the right way to live that's going to deliver the biggest benefit in the long run in some ways. And I suppose that's where there's that interesting link with modern psychology, And we spoke a little bit about it, I know, in the episodes, I believe, the ABC of CBT and the intolerance of irrational ideas that were a little while ago. But maybe how does this idea of stoicism relate to modern psychology? Well, I think there are a couple of main ways that you're also alluding to there. And one was the impact on cognitive behavioural therapy, which developed in the 60s and 70s, including with rational emotive therapy and Albert Ellis. I'll come back to him shortly. And so those kind of therapies were particularly about helping alleviate anxiety and depression and anger reactions and distress, so alleviating symptoms. But there's also ways that it impacted on positive psychology. So looking at the right way to live, as you mentioned, a positive pole of well-being, so to speak. Getting back to, say, Albert Ellis and rational emotive therapy, a very influential psychotherapist 
really became famous around the world in the 1970s for rational emotive therapy. And a lot of his ideas were very explicitly taken from Stoic philosophy. One was challenging the notion of the word should. If we think this shouldn't have happened like that or that shouldn't have happened like this or Zeno's cargo boat it shouldn't have sunk, you know, people should have handled things differently so it didn't sink or something like that kind of thing. Basically, Albert Ellis was on about the idea, well, dreadful things can happen or challenging things can happen, but then it comes down to how we respond to it. If we tell ourselves this was terrible or this was catastrophic or I can't stand this, then we will feel much worse. If we have other ways of thinking, well, this was very unfortunate, this will make an impact to my bank account or something like that at the time. However, it doesn't actually control every aspect of my life. I can still enjoy aspects of life in other kind of ways. I don't need to overgeneralise from this difficult situation to think everything in my life is terrible. Very much Albert Ellis was looking at the kind of rational ideas and interest in stepping back from our thinking and challenging our thinking from various kinds of exaggerations or distortions. And he particularly honed in on certain kind of thoughts or attitudes. One, he described challenging this dire need for disapproval. I must have everyone like me or I'm a lousy, non-fit person kind of thing. Or otherwise, Excessive concerns about success versus failure. I must be successful in everything I do to be a worthwhile person. It's terrible that I've failed this task. That means I'm not such a worthwhile person. And I'm using phrases almost along the lines that Albert Ellis would have used, almost exaggerating these kind of negative thoughts to highlight if we think things like this must happen like this or that shouldn't have happened or this is terrible that it was like this he'd highlight that we're making ourselves more distressed than we need to be. So that's where he outlined a number of thinking traps where people could end up with more distress. But more generally with cognitive behavioural therapy, which was influenced by RET as well, Ellis's therapy, basically it's stepping back from a situation and recognising the influence of our own thoughts. When we're anxious... It's because of seeing a threat or danger in situations. So if we think that someone ignored us, they walked on the other side of the street, a friend, they didn't acknowledge us, we might feel anxious thinking, oh, they don't like us. We might lose them as a friend. Oh, we might lose other friends as well. Maybe other people don't like me and starting to get worked up about that. Or we could walk past a friend who doesn't acknowledge us and feel depressed. Oh, they don't like me, this means I'm no good, this means I'm unlikable and I'm slightly exaggerating now but we can overreact to situations like that whereas if we react in a more indifferent way we might think look our friend was distracted, they didn't notice me or maybe they're in a hurry and we might even feel relieved in the same situation thinking oh well if they'd stopped to talk with me, I might have missed the train. So it's actually fortunate, even though they're a good friend, it's fortunate that I was able to still get past, get to the train on time. So the one situation can be interpreted in lots of different ways. And that's where Zeno came up with that classic example where rather than thinking that he'd lost everything, thought here was an opportunity to shift my direction in life towards understanding more about philosophy, becoming a teacher, and that is more my daemon. That's more my daemon than being a trader. Actually, that was a very prosperous thing to happen. It put me on the right track. 
And we can think of various aspects in our life. Many of us will have faced challenging situations that led us to maybe shift our direction. And what looked like it was dreadful at first actually became an opportunity or led to opportunities later on. So part of Stoic philosophy or even modern psychology is allowing for the fact that at times things might seem really bad, but then later on there might be advantages that come from that, even looking at the silver lining, so to speak. The name of this podcast, Psych Spills and Silver Linings, that notion of looking for the silver lining involves that aspect of Stoic philosophy where it's not just things that happen, but how we look at them can make a difference. And that to me seems like a, a really central point of, of stoicism and psychology is this idea of, say, stepping back from our thoughts because obviously this was such a, a profound idea, you know, a couple of thousand years ago, but in some ways it is still quite profound. And it's this idea that, say, like an event and the meaning from that event are separate from each other. Like when we experience an event, like we're going to interpret that in a way that in some ways includes all of our previous experiences and that event is going to give us an emotional reaction in a particular situation. But what stoicism is trying to get us to do is to separate those things. Like for example, if you're in a relationship with someone and that relationship ends, well, the end of the relationship is the event. And if we assign just 100% meaning in that event, well, we might think, oh, you know, like that was a bad relationship. You know, we're not able to take any good from that relationship because of the way that it ended. And if we fuse the meaning in the event together, well, we're never going to be able to change the event itself. So therefore, we're almost stuck with that meaning in some ways. And so it seems to me that stoicism, what it was really trying to do was to be able to step back from your thoughts and in a way reinterpret events so that we're not just fixed with that meaning forever, if that makes sense. Like if if someone passes away, like what a, a terrible event. Well, if we're stuck with just the emotion of that event, we may never be able to look past the, the tragedy of them not being here. We might not be able to, say, reframe things in a way where we can think, oh, well, you know, that was such a good friend. It was such a good opportunity to spend time with that person. I feel very grateful for having them in my life. It's almost like the more that we can kind of step back from these things and, say, or, or defuse in terms of, you know, make, make them not so fused together, it's going to help us to well, reframe and reinterpret things in a more positive way. Yes, that's a central thing, separating the event from our reactions to it. And you're getting at one of the main reasons at times why people might see a psychologist if they've had a, an ended relationship and the person might be feeling very distressed or even depressed after a lost relationship and their distress might be compounded by their interpretation like, well, I'm too short or I'm not smart enough or I'm not attractive enough or I'm no good at relationships or I can't handle conflict or something on those lines. If people overgeneralise in their thinking, then they will experience far more distress from that particular event. Rather than at times looking back, and especially over time as people look back, they can maybe see more reasons why a relationship ended and maybe recognise that that wasn't perhaps the ideal match for them. And like you're saying, people can learn things from a relationship that help them in a future situation. And same thing from a lost job. 
The person might think, oh my gosh, I'm a failure, I'm not smart enough. But it also might be other circumstances beyond the person's control why they were perhaps retrenched in a particular situation. So part of Stoic philosophy can help deal with loss and indeed trauma. Like you say, you can't change the event that's happened but one of the most positive things in psychology, one of the most optimistic things in therapy is recognising we don't have to change the event that happened, having had a broken leg or having had the relationship end or having faced some traumatic experience. Really what we need to shift is our reaction to that. And part of that could be shifting our way of perceiving it. And there are other kind of emotional and behavioural strategies that we can use for altering our reaction to events as well. So we're not just a puppet, if you like. We're not just reacting to those particular situations. And a whole lot of particular you know, common examples why people come to therapy are partly learning more what we can influence or control, not the event that's already happened. We can't change that, but we can change our view of it and how we respond to it in certain ways. And that seems to me to be a, another central part of, of Stoic philosophy in some ways in terms of, well, we can't control everything. And maybe there is a bit of a sense that, you know, we have, say, agency for ourselves, so we are going to be able to control the events that go on around us. But, of course, life's not like that. And I think if we get maybe stuck in that thinking a little bit of thinking, oh, we've got, you know, full control over everything that we do, well, when you come across a situation inevitably that you don't have control over – Without some of this type of thinking, you're stuck in whatever that kind of first and most emotive interpretation is. So I suppose if we get onto some other maybe examples of how Stoic philosophy comes up in modern psychology, do you have any maybe more specific examples that have come up with clients? Okay, well, there is that notion that it's not the event itself, it's our reaction and we can influence our reaction. That can apply to things like, say, panic attacks. Someone might think, oh, look, I had a panic attack because I went to the supermarket or I had a panic attack because I was in this really crowded place and I couldn't get away from the situation. Or I had a panic attack because I was driving over a bridge. So again, it's looking at the reaction as being tied to the phobic situation, if you like. But the core of psychological therapy for dealing with that phobic anxiety is to recognise that our feelings might be uncomfortable, but they're not dangerous. It's encouraging the bearing with the painful feelings. So again, with panic attacks, people might, for example, find that they can slow their breathing or shift their focus enough or just say some calming statement under their breath that helps them temper that level of agitation to the point of it being tolerable. And if the person finds that they can face a situation again and again and again, it might be driving over a bridge or going into a supermarket where there might be uncomfortable feelings, but they recognise those feelings themselves aren't dangerous. It's not the situation that's dangerous. That kind of exposure therapy is partly based on the principle of having a purpose, like we want to feel more free, be able to go to a supermarket or drive over bridges. And so part of it is having that purpose and recognising that we can manage through those feelings or bear with them. So that relates to the tolerance of discomfort. One other brief example of that is dealing with addictions. We call it urge surfing. Someone has an urge for alcohol when they're looking to be abstinent, and it's a matter of riding through those urges. If people hang in there with an urge that might have reached a certain level, it might feel like 
eight or nine out of ten, over a period of half an hour or so or an hour, that urge is almost certain to come down. Or if people have an urge for a cigarette or people have an urge for some other kind of substance or to react, if you like, with impulsive aggression, if people look to surf that urge or ride it out, so show that self-control of tempering their feelings, look, looking to tolerate that discomfort because they've got a purpose in doing so, then that's the kind of thing that also helps people deal with that distress. And it strikes me that even maybe some of the, or the, the language that we use in therapy can be quite stoic. Like, I know the stoic philosophers took a lot from Socrates and one of the things that Socrates did was just basically question everything and everyone. He had this way of basically going around and asking people questions about what they believe in things to the point where they themselves realised that there was a slight contradiction in that. And part of modern therapy seems to me to almost be this idea of almost being the, the Socratic questioner in some ways. So someone could come in and say something like, oh, you know, like everything I do I've failed at or, or you know, I'm, I'm a failure in everything that I do. And or the psychologist could say something like, well, everything that you do like well what about say coming here today did you do that okay what about well putting that forward is something that you sort of feel anxious about is that a failure within itself what about say clothing yourself this morning and the person could say okay well not everything is a failure and so it's almost this idea of questioning things in a way that helps the person to understand that there's maybe been a, a slight flaw in their logic and through this maybe sense of questioning and getting them to maybe reflect within themselves in a certain way, what allows them to kind of go, all right, maybe I was thinking about it in these black and white terms, but if I actually sort of pick my way through it, I realise there's a little bit more nuance to this situation, so maybe I need to think about it a little bit more than that. Yes, and very much with cognitive behaviour therapy, people talk about a main strategy being Socratic questioning, just as you described there. It can even be asking people, and what would be the worst thing about that? For example, if someone didn't like you, oh, well, then that means that they'd never be my friend anymore. And what would be the worst thing about that? Oh, well, that might mean in the end that I ended up with no friends. And after a while, people start to realise the exaggerations that are coming up in their thinking by having it, if you like, drilled into a little bit more or reflected on a little bit more. And so very explicitly with Aaron Beck and cognitive therapy, he'd be teaching people to look out for the black and white thinking as you described, the overgeneralizations, the selectively attending to the negative and ignoring the positive, those kind of thinking errors that would be described explicitly as thinking errors in cognitive therapy that would lead people to have more distress. And that could also come up with loss as well, with grief and loss. If people, in a sense, thought that they shouldn't be experiencing the level of pain that they were experiencing and perhaps catastrophizing that they would always be feeling that particular way, ignoring the fact that there's meaning in the painful feelings of grief we have when we lose someone. It's, in a sense, a part of life. All of us are going to lose, just like Buddhist philosophy will emphasize. So be wary of our attachments, because our attachments also will come with a degree of pain when we inevitably lose at least some people close to us or material possessions that are important. But I think that acknowledging the pain of loss and seeing some meaning attached to it is far better than, for example, medicalising grief 
and looking at it as a form of depression and treating people with antidepressants with something which is a natural part of life, if you like, losing people close to us and having a reaction to that. That's not to say that it's never relevant or helpful for people to sometimes have antidepressant medication if they've been in a grief-stricken situation. But by the same token, I'd wonder whether there really is a need for about 10% of the adult Australian population to be taking antidepressants. I think part of that is losing some sight of Stoic philosophy and ways we can experience purpose and meaning in life even when we're going through painful experience. Well, particularly when you hear of examples of people who've been prescribed antidepressant or anxiolytic medication for life, like you hear that sort of thing and you think, well... That sort of suggests that they're never going to be able to remove the meaning from the event in a particular situation. And I suppose just to get back to that super quickly, because it is quite a, a complicated idea in some ways. Like you had a really good example before about someone who might have had a fight with a friend and then they're thinking, oh, you know, I'm not good enough as a friend. I, I won't be able to make friends anymore that are that good or it's, you know, it's a bit of a, a pattern that keeps emerging for me or whatever. It's like... I suppose meaning in this situation, it's almost like a, a bit of a deeper meaning in terms of, say, it, it, it means, you know, how do I feel about myself or what do I think about, you know, who I am and what I'm doing and whether or not that's good or bad, all this sort of stuff. It's like these things come from the events that we go through, but it certainly doesn't mean they're fixed. And I suppose getting back to the whole idea of Stoic philosophy is that you can reinterpret these things in a more positive way and just strikes me if someone's maybe being prescribed antidepressant medication forever, well, it's suggesting to them that they're not able to, you know, reframe things in a more positive way. They're not able to view, say, an event as, as not necessarily making up part of their identity and it's almost suggesting to them that you know they're, they're basically at the whims of the universe in some ways because whatever happens to them and, and however that causes them any sense of distress well they're not being given the facilities to overcome that within themselves it's just maybe something to sort of numb or, or dull the effect of that. Yes, I think what you're getting at there, what that reminds me of is the importance of people having a sense of agency. We've talked about that before and had a, a podcast on that as well, the notion of having a sense of agency. And a lot of modern psychology also is looking at that notion of, well, what we can influence and what we might not. And so that I think also relates to positive psychology and how Stoic philosophy relates to positive psychology. It's about not just feeling happy, and if you like tranquil, calm and relaxed or accepting kind of thing, but also how Stoic philosophy does emphasise purpose. It does emphasise self-control. Self-control involves a degree of agency where, again, we might say yes to something which is hard to do but it's worth doing, so pursuing our values. That's like acceptance and commitment therapy, a modern therapy which is very much emphasising values, saying yes to things that are important, but also being able to say no to things that maybe aren't so important to us. It might be being a bit discerning with our friendship groups if we think that at times we're maybe not being anything like the best version of ourselves if we're with maybe some friendship groups rather than others that we might have outlived, especially if people have a whole peer group where they're mainly engaged in drug taking as a form of recreation, for example. Or it might be saying no to a bad habit in a certain way. So 
again, there's some of the ways that we can look at having a more fulfilling life. But also reflecting on that and positive psychology, I might mention shortly some of the main virtues or character strengths that are highlighted in Stoic philosophy. Well, let's get into those because I know it is a very central part of Stoic philosophy is this idea of virtues and we might get into it a little bit more next time because it's it's one that I almost see is, is maybe a little bit more of a complicated idea and almost struggle to I suppose distill it down in some way so I, I think I've got maybe a little bit more reading to do but uh but do you want to just maybe uh, give us a sense of, of what those virtues are and, and how they relate? Okay well there are four main virtues highlighted one being courage Now, we can imagine that can include a range of things. One is the courage of our convictions or the courage to follow a path which is purposeful or meaningful to us, but also the courage to tolerate some kind of discomfort as we go about pursuing our values or our interests or our purpose. Then temperance. So temperance relating to that notion of self-control. Relating to a notion of balance, recognising that we can influence our habits by saying yes or no to different things. Doesn't mean it's easy, but that temperance or self-control is part of it. Justice. So in our relationships, having that sense of fortitude in standing up for what we believe, including what's fair for other people, and then wisdom. And I think wisdom is often what we would associate with that perspective, that rational kind of perspective, being able to step back from our own reactions, look at the thinking behind them, looking to have balanced kind of thinking. So I think it's really interesting that, again, what positive psychology highlights, the positive pole of well-being, and a core aspect of that is by cultivating our character strengths. Now, whereas positive psychology highlights its emphasis on these virtues or character strengths, that's developed in the last 20 years or so. So we're talking about Stoic philosophy going for at least 2,300 years and emphasising particularly those virtues, courage, temperance, justice and wisdom. It is funny in some ways as, as someone who's, who's maybe not on the, uh, the inner of, of positive psychology as some others may be, you, you do get maybe a little bit of a sense that they think that they have a monopoly on some of this sort of stuff, but to recognise that it was there, say, two and a half thousand years ago, I, I just find is absolutely fascinating. But I suppose looking at those, those four virtues, like it gets back to what the central idea of Stoic philosophy is, and it's almost like how can we get the most out of life despite all the you know, obstacles and challenges that can come up. Like if you look at, say, like a, a guiding star or a, a direction to kind of follow, well, it's almost like in, in all situations, if we can go back to, say, like courage, temperance, justice and wisdom, like that's going to get us through a lot of situations. And maybe to give positive psychology credit, like maybe we've expanded it to 24. Maybe they're all, you know, very good, say, guiding principles to follow in some ways. And depending on who we are and which ones we resonate to more, that's maybe going to be a little bit individual for us. But it does suggest that maybe, you know, what what both Stoic philosophy and positive psychology draw upon is going hold on, we're going to be in so many different situations in life that are just so beyond our concept of what's predictable or unpredictable, like so much of it is going to be unpredictable. Well, what can we go back to kind of within ourselves that's going to give us the best chance of living, you know, 
the best life in in quotes possible and it seems that the stoics had those those four things so courage temperance justice and wisdom positive psychology has obviously expanded that a lot more and i wonder if there's maybe a little bit of a sense of say in the culture of ancient greece and around the hellenic world well culturally maybe these four things were say character strengths that a lot of people shared or maybe a disproportionate amount of people shared compared to what say the the spectrum of character strengths profiles would be now it's almost like i wonder where you know a little bit more multicultural we've sort of integrated so many more different ideas in our society now that there's actually say 24 that we can work with rather than just the four that were there but i do find it so interesting that we'll say positive psychology and stoicism almost hit on this idea of going look life is going to be so unpredictable in so many different situations that you're not even going to be able to conceptualize so how on earth do you come up with a bit of a blueprint or a template in that situation? Well, maybe if you focus on these four things that, you know, uh, across cultures, across time, we've sort of seen them to be valuable and still continue to see them as valuable. So maybe they're, I suppose, good indicators of a, a good place to start in terms of maybe thinking and reflecting on how you've acted in a situation or, or whether an event has, has had an effect on you. Yes, and going back to the character strengths, which have always been of interest in this podcast, I think some of the best in positive psychology is looking at those 24 character strengths and people looking at their character strengths profile by doing that signature character strengths questionnaire. We've advocated that before. It highlights 24 character strengths, and I'm sure the ancient Greeks, including the Stoic philosophers, would have recognised all 24 of them because actually that's how they were developed with Chris Peterson, Martin Seligman, reviewing all the cultures that they could come across evidence of what kind of values they promoted. And these 24 values would come up again and again and again in these different cultures rather than just these four. But it is interesting that combination that is highlighted in uh, Stoic philosophy. And, And certainly that's what came across to me from reading that book, The Lives of the Stoics, highlighting those characteristics. Just one final thing that I'd like to add. It's an expression that I think is so helpful for putting a lot of this in perspective. It isn't easy just to clarify our values and purpose and act on that facing the various obstacles as you described earlier. There are a lot of challenges that come up with that. Just naturally there are challenges in life, there are losses that we face. Even changing habits is difficult. That could be challenging in itself. And I really like this Stoic expression. I think this might have also come from Zeno, but certainly a Stoic philosopher, that well-being is realised by small steps, but is truly no small thing. That is such a wonderful principle for psychotherapy or any kind of behaviour change. I'll mention it again. Well-being is realised by small steps, but is truly no small thing. I think that's one of the underpinnings of our podcast. We've actually had our 100th episode based on the suggestion by Irving Polster, a psychotherapist with 80 years experience, a world leader in gestalt therapy, and how he was saying that change is difficult, but often where you start is just one step. Just take one step, the next step. And it's interesting to see that put in context as well by the Stoic philosophers. Because one small step is truly no small thing. 
And that's one thing that we encourage with this podcast. If people pick up any ideas from it that seem meaningful or relevant to them, they might relate it to a particular situation they're in, they might think of even some small behaviour change they're interested in facing or something that they think is worth doing but it's hard to do but they'd like to do that, just thinking of one thing that might like to address in some way and taking some step towards that. That's a good example of Stoic philosophy put into action because the Stoics were about action, putting your beliefs into words, putting your words into works, as they put it. I think that's a good point to finish in some ways, Dave, because I wonder if there's almost maybe a sense of, like, say, some of these Stoic ideas have maybe gone out of our culture a little bit. And I think about, say, that idea of, you know, well-being is realised by small steps but is no small thing. Like, in some ways, so much of, of what we're doing in modern life is, like, looking for the silver bullet or looking for the quick fix over things. And even stuff like you look at, say, dieting or you look at, say, a lot of well-being material online and a lot of it is, you know, do this in five steps or do this, you know, as quickly as possible or with the least amount of effort. It sort of seems to be the implicit message of it but like I, I wouldn't necessarily you know profess to uh to have a whole lot of wisdom but it just seems that you know in my life anyway most of the things I've come across that are worth doing there's no kind of quick fix or you know silver bullet or just instant you know thing that's going to get you over the line in some ways and to me that's the uh the blessing and the curse of some of this sort of stuff in terms of well it's not as if you know you you can even learn about a lot of this kind of stuff and and things change tomorrow like I even know you know it was probably say a couple of years ago from the first time I heard about stoic philosophy properly and I'm in some ways still trying to get my head around it I find it just so fascinating but there's quite a an element of it which is I think quite profound in some ways but it just strikes me that say in in modern culture that idea of taking small steps and, and getting, you know, a long way after a period of time, that's almost something that we, uh, we, we shy away from a little bit. Yes, and it's also interesting what you've said about self-help, I suppose, columns and how they're written. It's tempting and people are encouraged to end them with a listicle, meaning here's a list of five things you might do or seven things you might do to achieve nirvana or whatever it is or to have this wonderful outcome, and it does come across as a bit glib and I think it adds to the notion that things should be a bit easy or it shouldn't be so hard and I think that's one thing that may be shifting a bit in our culture. I think often there's a bit more struggle that many people face with the idea that this shouldn't be so hard. Well it's pretty challenging when a whole lot of things that you work toward, it might be further qualifications or it might be working through conflict in a relationship or it might be having a hobby where you're looking at dealing with a more difficult kind of aspect of it. A whole lot of things that are worthwhile do take a fair bit of patience, courage, those other kind of aspects as well. So I think getting around that and recognising that we do have resources for helping us deal with many situations that might be challenging, especially if we take it in small steps. Well, absolutely, and oh, it's been good chatting about all this stuff today, Dad. It's in some ways, I, I must admit, I've I've had to bite my tongue a little bit in terms of there's a lot of this stuff that makes me want to kind of go off in a whole range of directions, and we might do a little bit more of that next time because I just find that the interplay of some of these ideas and history just so interesting and gives a bit of a, a broader context in some ways. Like when you look at, say, Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, and then 
course, his uh, student was Alexander the Great and he exported these ideas all over the world. Like, I think there was only, say, 100, 150,000 people who lived in ancient Athens. So in certain circles, they all probably would have known each other. And so there's a lot about these ideas which do intermingle with different schools of thought and different philosophies. And oh, I just think it's such a, a goldmine of of well, philosophy when, when you start looking into some of this st- sort of stuff. So, yeah, we, we might do a little bit more of that in the next podcast. Yes, and I'd have to say, Rowan, as we prepared for this, I realised the more we've looked into the theme of Stoicism, the more you realise how much there is in it. There's a fair bit to get your head around. And I had a maybe somewhat simplistic view of it beforehand. And I'll still be integrating these ideas for quite some time to come. But I think there's so much in it that goes back to that basic principle. It's not things that happen that lead us to feel or react a certain way. It does come down to our view of them and what we can bring to the situation. There's something that really helps with that sense of agency. But anyway, I really look forward to your take on Stoicism and other ideas related to it in our next episode because there's many different ways of looking at this theme. Well, we do have a, a little bit of a break before that next episode because you're, you're heading away to quite an interesting place, aren't you? Yes, well, I must admit it's a bit of an indulgence. Have a few weeks away to visit Antarctica. So I think that'll be a wonderful experience and I'll certainly try to draw on some of those stoic qualities if I feel pretty queasy or seasick going through the Drake Passage. I think you might need to, but uh, thanks for chatting with me about all this today, Dad. I'll look forward to the next one. Look forward to it, Rowan.